This is The Guardian. When he stood outside 10 Downing Street three months ago, Rishi Sunak said this. Trust is earned, and I will earn yours. So why then are we already in the middle of yet another Tory sleaze crisis? We all know why the Prime Minister was reluctant to ask his party chair questions about family finances and tax avoidance. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Raphael Baer. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. Thank you for joining us. Um, today we'll be talking about the obvious, the careless, in quote marks, multi-million pound HMRC slip-up, the BBC chairman, and a pledge from Rishi Sunak to clean up the Conservative Party that now seems to be colliding with reality, to say the least. What does all of this mean for the Prime Minister and his government? Um, We're actually going to start, though, by moving away from Westminster slightly and talking about something that happened over the weekend. On Saturday, with my two kids, in the capacity of a punter rather than a journalist, I went to Dartmoor, uh, where I joined around 3,000 other people who were protesting against a legal ruling last week ending Dartmoor National Park's right to wild camp. The High Court ruled last Friday that the owner of an estate on the moor had the right to remove people from wild camping on their land. It was an amazing day. It was a beautiful day as much as anything else. I think the number of people who showed up surprised even the organisers. It was a hell of a lot of people to be contributing to this huge assembly in the countryside. And it very vividly brought to life big questions about land, money, the right to roam, our access to nature. So here we are today gathered because what is going on here is more than an issue of politics. It's more than an issue of class. This is our fundamental relationship to wild nature that has been compromised. I didn't grow up on Dartmoor. I grew up on Tor- I grew up in Torquay on an estate, and it meant an awful lot to me and to many people I know that this was a place where we could come and something got fertilised in our imagination. The Darwells who own the land say they want to improve conservation of the Dartmoor Commons. At the march were people of all ages, from younger students to much older ramblers. And you've got a sense, really, that people who might never have considered themselves political up to this point might be being driven to really speak up and act up, for that matter, over this issue. Lewis Wicks is part of the campaign group Right to Rome and one of the protests that happened on Saturday's organisers. Lewis, tell me, first of all, sort of how this came into being? How did you get involved? Well, there was a group of us down here in Devon who got wind of this uh, court case that was coming up. So this is this is um, back in the middle of last year when we started getting together, having conversations and talking about um, how do we organise around this? How do we raise awareness? Because at that point, there were very few people having conversations about it. Um, and that all kind of came to a head in... Um, November, December time, as we got closer to the court hearing itself. Um, At that point, the press started to take notice and we realised that this really was something that was quite big in the public consciousness. And our campaign group kept working around that that particular case and the hearing which took place on the 12th of December. Were you surprised by how many people sort of swarmed (laughs) onto the edges of Dartmoor on Saturday? It was quite a thing to see. 
When we, when we first started thinking about this, we thought, well, we'll do something small. We'll be the, the start of something else. So we wanted to gather people in a show of um, resistance to this ruling, which is a retrograde step for, for access rights in England. Um, and we wanted to show that there, there, was, um, there were people out there that, that cared. And we didn't at that point realise that three and a half thousand people would take to a remote part of Dartmoor um, on, a, on a Saturday in January. Um, and we were we were absolutely blown away. We had a lot of organising to do and a lot of conversations with coach companies. Tell me what it means to people. Why is the right to wild camp such a sort of resonant, symbolic thing? Well, down here in Devon, we had up until uh, a week ago last Friday, the last remnant of the right to wild camp in England. Dartmoor National Park, 70,000 acres of land where you could pitch a tent um, and sleep under the stars for a night. Now, that was only 0.2% of the whole of England in itself. So really just a sliver of land where this was possible. But yet a highly celebrated right, which people have enjoyed for generations. You know, there's records dating back right to the turn of last century of people um, sleeping out on Dartmoor. And we realised that this this last vestige of, of this right is so important for people because of the experiences that it generates, transformative moments in people's lives, the way in which it can really impact on individuals and groups, including Tentors, Duke of Edinburgh, which started in the late 50s. And when we see it in light of those experiences, we end up with a realisation that actually the reason we've only got this tiny sliver left is because the rest has been taken away, as well as the access that we have to the countryside, the the 8% of land which is accessible only to a very few people. And so this campaign fits in with a broader approach to trying to get back some of these rights of access, which we've lost at a time where we know that um, access to the outdoors, access to the countryside is good for people's physical and mental health and well-being. And so all of this provides us with a strong incentive to push back against this ruling within the context of the broader access rights in the whole of England. It's deeply political, this, isn't it? Because it's about that very sort of visceral, emotional, very human stuff about access to nature and how we spend whatever spare time we're lucky enough to get and all of that. But it's also about money and power and land ownership and all of these questions which we don't talk about in politics nearly enough. That's right. And when, when we were gathered outside the courts of justice back in December, what was happening inside the courts was, was a very forensic unpicking of these bylaws, these 1985 bylaws. But what we had outside the court, as we shared stories of connectedness to landscapes and time spent in the natural world and sleeping under the stars, waking up to mist-filled valleys and tall specked horizons, it, it became very apparent that, that the political is deeply personal and that we were talking politics, but we're talking about personal experiences. And we had people writing to us saying that they were on their way to Ivy Bridge to get the shuttle buses in floods of tears because of their memories from childhood. We had family groups. We had a huge spread of intergenerational groups coming up to Dartmoor. And amongst them, people who were in their 80s and 90s who could remember camping up on Dartmoor as young people. And so, yeah, I think it is, it is political, but it's that kind of crossover between where we as humans connect to the world around us. But maybe we don't think about that as, as politics. We think about that as our own connection with place. And, and something this campaign has done is it's kind of blasted into the foreground the, the notion that, that our relationship with place is political. 
Brilliant. We will, have, we will have more of this conversation, I'm sure, in the near future. Thank you so much for coming on and for sort of extending the bounds of the politics that Politics Weekly UK talks about. It's, that's, it's a great thing to do. Thanks so much, Lewis. Thanks, John. Gabby, I don't know whether you followed this story over the weekend. What did you make of it all and, and whether or not it was political? It seems to me to be profoundly political. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things. I live in the countryside, not in Dartmoor, but I do understand it's not surprising to me that people who wouldn't normally say they were political or wouldn't normally get involved in politics do feel incredibly strongly about sort of preserving the countryside around them, preserving the environment around them. But I think also there's something that goes back to lockdown almost, which is about you know understanding how important green space and being in nature and having the freedom to leave your house and you know go off into the wild and have an adventure became during that kind of period that feeling that it's being taken away from you and especially being taken away from you by some rich landowner who blah 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 you know that really i think just gets people at quite a visceral level yeah i think Abby's definitely onto something there with the, with lockdown and the way uh, yeah that sort of that that just put roaming around generally a little bit more sort of prominently into into the culture of what people think is a is a fundamental entitlement. I mean, it's interesting you said that you know you were surprised at how many people turned out. I think we're used to reporting on the phenomenon of a sort of a digital environment mobilizing protests uh, in other countries in you know under repressive regimes. You know, whether it's you know, uh, women in in Iran or you know, pro democracy activists uh, in sort of authoritarian states. But there's no reason why that same digital dynamic shouldn't also operate at some level in the UK. That actually word spreads fast, people are interconnected, and and people get for of a better word sort of radicalized around whatever issue it is and and also i think there is a tendency to accept what is actually a kind of a, a fleet street trope or narrative that rambling or the rights room are, are sort of issues for crusty <laughs> green hippies uh, and they aren't it's just everywhere it cuts across the whole of society young and old you know people it's actually quite a conservative thing people like to go for a nice walk with their with their dog it touches something deeper that and I think a lot of people who want it to be partisan and political don't really understand the cultural dimension to it. It reminded me very much of the original Kinder Scout Trespass, actually, which again was a sort of, you know, it was a had its origins in the Labour movement, it was left-wing thing, but you were getting sort of retired vicars and all sorts of people turning up on it. You know, it was a very much a cross-section of society, just that important that people had the right to be outside in open space. It gives me the sense mostly because of what Raf said about how quickly and easily things can be organised now, that sort of powerful, rich, vested interests now are more vulnerable, perhaps, than they might think they are. You know, if, if you put your head above the parapet and you move into the political foreground, you can be confronted with, with people objecting to what you do very, very easily in a way that I don't think was the case 20 or 30 years ago. Anyway, just by way of clarifying um, the motivations of Mr. Darwell, um, responding to the High Court judgment, he and his wife Diana said, and I quote, we are grateful to the High Court for its thoroughness in clarifying the matter. We now hope to engage with the Dartmoor National Park Authority so that we can improve outcomes on the ground. Working together, we can improve conservation of the Dartmoor Commons and improve the experience for those enjoying the Commons legitimately. OK, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we're going to be looking at the Conservative Party uh, and what its latest battle to fight Sleaze tells us. Right, it's been three months 
since Rishi Sunak was brought in, that's his words, which he used in a recent video, to number 10, promising to somehow clean up the mistakes of his two predecessors and restore public trust. This is what he said as he entered uh, the door of Downing Street. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. He always sounds like a very bad TED talk, I think. Um, now, illegal lockdown parties, allegations of cronyism and a chaotic mini-budget have left a lot of people with the impression, let's be honest, that the government has succumbed to the sort of chaos and moral murkiness that often settles on an administration when it's nearing its end. <laughs> Rishi Sunak plays that somehow he was going to change all that, but in the space of only seven days, we've seen our second prime minister in a year receive a police fine, an inquiry launched into a member of his cabinet's careless tax mistake, by HMRC, allegations of even more cronyism centred on his predecessor, Boris Johnson. And let's not forget that the findings of an investigation into allegations of bullying by Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, are due any time now. Now, we're recording this on a Wednesday lunchtime. Nadim Sahawi is still in post as Conservative Party chairman. This is what Rishi Sunak said about that particular matter at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. The issues in question occurred before I was Prime Minister. With regard, with regard to the appointment, with regard to the appointment of the Minister without portfolio, the usual appointments process was followed. No issues, no issues were raised with me when he was appointed to his current role. And since I commented on this matter last week, more information has come forward. And that is why I have asked the independent advisor to look into the matter. How many independent... Is this the ethics advisor? It is the new ethics advisor, yeah. And how many of those are we, have we been through? Sunak's only had one. This is the first one. It took him a while to appoint him. Um, Boris Johnson lost two and Liz Truss never got round to appointing one. <laughs> OK, that's clarified. Gabby, it's sort of like a pub quiz question, really. I don't know whether you can do this in 30 seconds. Can you walk us through the Zahawi story? No. It is rather complicated. <laughs> it's a very, very slow burn story. I mean, Guardian readers with long memories will, will remember stories dating back to five years or so to um, his links to something called the Bolshoi Investments uh, Trust Fund in Gibraltar, which he at the time he wasn't a beneficiary of. It was his father's trust fund, nothing to do with, with him. But it all kind of really started boiling over again this July when he was made Chancellor in a very sort of rushed emergency appointment after Sunak resigned in protest at what Boris Johnson was up to. And at the time, there were reports that his, his appointment had been flagged by HMRC. So that's the HMRC saying, hang on, we've got some, some issues with this um, person. And Zahawi at the time was saying, you know, nothing to see here. Oh, my taxpayers are in order. And then sort of independent tax expert called Dat Needle was sort of poking around in, in his affairs, in the arrangement of the trust, questioning whether or not he was a, a beneficiary. Zahawi is insisting throughout he's not a beneficiary of the trust. You know, he's not, it's nothing to do with with him, there are YouGov shares in it. He founded the, the polling company YouGov, but they're, they're for his father. They're nothing to do with him. And that was roughly the line uh, until it all went quiet, until a week or a bit ago when the Sun reported that he'd paid a settlement of several million pounds to HMRC. Uh, it's since been reported that part of that was a penalty. Now, obviously, you don't normally end up having to pay millions of pounds to HMRC if everything about your taxes is 100% 
fine. Uh, Rishi Sunak insisted last week at PMQs that, that Zahawi's tax affairs were all in order. Um, but this week, as you can hear, the line changed. Uh, Zahawi himself accepted after the Nisa supplement became public that he had made what he called careless but not deliberate um, error. And he said he'd paid the money to HMRC to settle this and get on with being a public servant. Whether he will continue getting on with being a public servant or not is now in the hands of the Prime Minister's ethics advisor. And if I was, I mean, a lot of Tory MPs are thinking his days may be numbered, judging by the irritated tone of the PM at, um, in the chamber today. Okay, that was more like a minute and a half, but it's very well done. Anyone listening probably knows quite a lot more than they did when, when, when you started explaining all that. Raf, what do you think this says about the judgment of, the, of conservative politicians and the mess that successive conservative governments seem to get themselves into routinely? Two separate things here. One, I think it's just uh, speaks to a, a level of kind of rot and decrepitude in the Conservative Party that might just be irreversible. Uh, and I think the... The only way to deliver integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level, I think is the quote, would be a kind of very clear repudiation of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. But unfortunately, he lost to Liz Truss in the summer leadership contest. He never fought Boris Johnson for the leadership. And Boris Johnson's loyal supporters uh, think Rishi Sunak stabbed him in the back and, and hate him for it. So he doesn't actually have a base in the party that is wide or solid enough to actually do the purge. You know, there isn't there aren't enough people, you know, and and in, in a way, uh, separate to the sort of tax situation that Gabby brilliantly praised there. I mean, Zahawi is sort of a legacy of that whole Johnson era. I mean, why was he Chancellor of the Exchequer at all? Uh, well, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer because he was prepared in, in July 2022 when the, you know, the, the Boris Johnson ship, the deck was underwater. It was going down. I mean, it was so obviously sleazy and rotten and falling apart. He could barely put together a cabinet. And yet there's Nadim Zahawi going, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll be your chancellor, go on. Um, now, you know, that's a red flag already. Even if Sunak had the the sort of the capability and the will, I think he he does, he sort of lacks, the as it were, the, the personnel to really refresh the offer. And I, also then I don't think he has the judgment. I think, you know, as we, we saw in, in Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, this sort of claiming this due process or that new information had come to light between one week and another. And so he has to get the ethics advisors to look at it. What new facts does he think the ethics advisor will unearth that change his ability to make a political judgment about whether he should keep Zahawi? So I think he's actually, in, in, we're seeing a lot of flaws on a lot of levels being exposed here. Revelations and allegations about politicians and huge levels of wealth and their dealings with the tax authorities, which, you know, don't reflect the dealings of the tax authorities with mere mortals. That always looks pretty objectionable to a lot of people. Like, Gabby, I wonder whether it looks even more objectionable now because of the cost of living crisis. And for that matter, because the so-called tax burden, actually, for ordinary folks is higher than it's been for years. Do you think there's a sort of extra salience with all this because of the times that we're in? I think there's definitely an extra salience, which is, you know, well, how it's that old sense of, well, rich people get away with these things and poor people don't. I think there's an extra salience just on a really trivial level because it's in January and loads of people are having to do their, you know, self-employed tax returns at the end of this month. And they're sitting there going, hmm, well, I don't think the HMRC would be very forgiving if I sort of accidentally mislaid £27 million on the back of the sofa. You're feeling careless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think politically what's going on, there, there is that, but there is also just the general sense of sort of, 
haplessness around Rishi Sunak that you know he can't seem to go five minutes without something sort of some sort of skeleton falling out of a, a closet upstairs and underneath it all actually the what I would want to know if I was him is is this just one of those cases where you know a minister's done the wrong thing and you need to bin them or in how much has number 10 failed to pass on information what has something gone wrong inside the machine of number 10 or were there warnings that got lost in the system you know lots of questions about Simon Case and his role in all of this. When these stories break, I wonder whether we're really seeing the sort of operations of networks and the machinations of sort of power and money that are actually there all the time, right? It's interesting, isn't it? I, I suspect there is an extent to which it that it has ever been thus, and it used to just be called uh, the establishment, and people were, were in the same club, sitting in the same Chesterfields, you know, drinking port and smoking the same cigars and having these conversations informally. Uh, and maybe actually it's a good thing, you could argue, that our standards are that much higher that we're appalled by this, as opposed to thinking that's just the way business is always done. But there is another view, I think, which you certainly hear from people in Whitehall, which is that uh, there used to be more protocols and processes that would at least be obstacles to this sort of thing. And that's been really hollowed out in recent years by a number of things. One is really good quality people actually wanting to go off and work in the private sector because the money's better. So actually high caliber people not coming through the civil service and actually being rigorous enough. One is austerity and budget cuts and uh, essentially just the sort of what used to be the Rolls Royce administration not functioning properly. Another one is the pandemic, which just bred this culture of corner cutting and doing whatever was expedient and just hooking things up informally. And then you throw in, you mentioned WhatsApp. I just think an awful lot of process going on through text messages and WhatsApp that just there is no mechanism for that. And the analogue state just can't keep up with it. We should make it clear that um, Zahawi denies that he has done anything wrong. Now let's come on to Boris Johnson and the current chairman of the BBC. Ahead of the select committee hearings into Partygate and whether Boris Johnson lied to Parliament, Johnson has made headlines yet again this week as it emerged that his appointment for BBC chair Richard Sharp had played some role in the setting up of an £800,000 credit facility around the same time. And now another inquiry is ongoing. Richard Eyre, a former member of the BBC Trust, said this week of Richard Sharp, he applied for the job knowing that his old friend Boris Johnson would decide who got it. While he waited for the result, he put Johnson in touch with someone who could help him borrow 800k. What's not inappropriate about that? <laughs> We've lost the capacity for surprise about Boris Johnson and his various dealings, I suppose, Raf. But were you at all shocked or taken aback? I wasn't shocked, but the point that seemed quite new to me was actually that the Prime Minister's personal finances were in such bad order so urgently uh, that he needed a credit facility of his own, despite getting, you know, six figure prime minister's salary and having earned however much he was earning for churning out those telegraph columns. And that the, the cabinet secretary was sort of involved at some level in this kind of pimping arrangement that involved bailing out the prime minister, because that actually, to me, seems to point to something very dangerous. I mean, you can't have a prime minister who's broke and who's therefore using his office to attend to a crisis in his personal finances. That, that's that's like a national security problem as much as anything else. And that actually shocks me a little bit. Gabby, the, the BBC side of this, it does sort of strike you anew, doesn't it, in the midst of all this, that there's something very, very wrong about the idea that prime ministers appoint the chairs of the BBC. And maybe it took Boris Johnson to really make that point. It's not, I mean, it's not necessarily a new point in the sense that there were people sort of in and around the political community surrounding New Labour who ended up with very senior jobs at the BBC. And, and, and quite a fuss was made of that at the time. 
but maybe this is the point at which we realise that that if we're not careful, these look like political appointments with all the awful baggage that brings with them. And the awful baggage for the BBC in particular, which struggles enough to convince people overseas that it's not, you know, a state broadcaster, it's, it's independence, not an arm of government. I mean, it's true of all Quango jobs that they tend to kind of go to friends of the people in power. You know, it's not just true of the BBC, that's true of a million other sort of organisations in public life. And, and, you know, they tend to go out when their government goes out and you sweep in a whole load of new friends of friends of. I think what shocked me this time was more, it's the level of just sheer sort of chumminess. Richard Sharp, at the time he was doing all of this, was was working in number 10. You know, you've got someone who's an old friend of the, the Prime Minister. You've got someone who's taking phone calls from Boris Johnson's convenient distant cousin. You know, none of my cousins have ever popped up out of the woodwork and offered to lend me 800k, but I guess all families. Are <laughs> but, you know, you, and this kind of thing where everybody's a friend of someone's. We should say, actually, that the cousin has since said that um, not all of the money was drawn down. But I mean, the other aspect of this is the cousin is a Canadian citizen. There are big rules about for overseas donors, you know, giving to political parties for good reason. Now, this wasn't a gift to the party. It was bailing out, you know, the prime minister. But all of it is just hooky frankly and also the i mean just to be clear the the appointments process for the bbc chair it's not the, the rules state don't just say that there shouldn't be a conflict of interest it's, it's, they state that the process should be conducted without the perception of a conflict of interest so clearly the process has been corrupted regardless of what the motive was because clearly the perception of a conflict of interest is there in, like, in, in neon lights flashing with great sirens going off you know, what we're touching on here, I think, is a is a problem that really has been exposed in the last few years, which is the the long, agonising, slow death of what, you know, uh, Peter Hennessy famously called the good chaps theory of government, yeah, yeah. which is this idea that British democracy rests on a set of cultural presumptions about how that we don't need a written constitution because there is an intuitive sense of decency in the ruling class. And Hennessy himself has said that clearly no longer applies. He actually declared the last rights on his own theory uh, when Boris Johnson uh, got his fine over the Partygate scandal. And and quite clearly, that is the case. And whether the answer is a, a written constitution or a change of government, I would say probably both. Just to make this clear, Richard Sharp insists that the loan process was followed by the book and there is no conflict of interest. It is often said, Gabby, that when you get the impression of sort of spivery and and politics is most self-serving in the Conservative Party. The public doesn't take against it to nearly the extent that they might because it's somehow priced in and that's what they expect of Conservative politicians anyway. I wonder whether you think that's there in the public reaction or lack of it to all of this. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily true that people specifically expect spivery from conservative, great word, from conservative politicians. I think people expect spivery from politicians, full stop. I think there is a built-in assumption that happens. But when it becomes toxic, it's generally when everything else is going wrong. I mean, I think when, you know, your life is ticking along very nicely, thank you, and you feel quite comfortable and your life feels, you know, full of promise and public services are working well and your job's going great, you, you are less kind of irritated by this stuff. But when it feels as if the country is falling apart around you and you can't get a GP appointment and your kids' teachers are on strike and you're broke and you haven't had a pay rise and everything's more expensive than it used to be, then it is enraging to kind of see particularly this sort of chumminess and this sense that lots of people are kind of bailing each other out in this little elite circle at the top that you're never going to have access to and that people seem to be in it for themselves. And it ties together this sense of staleness of a government that's kind of run out of ideas and kind of run out of steam generally that ties together with sleaze in a way that i think is quite toxic for the party as you can see from the polls yeah let's talk about 
about the government's position and what that means for its political future, really. I mean, clearly, it looks almost impossible for the Conservatives to somehow get their house in order. Um, and you do get a sense that the party now, the Conservative Party, is in the, the sort of death rattles of this particular phase of its history. And it's all sort of spilling out for all to see. Raf, you wrote a column this week in The Guardian, which I thought had a really great concept at the heart of it, which is that of long Boris Johnson, the idea that he's no longer in power, but conservative politics still happens almost entirely in his shadow. And all of this is an, is a glaring example of that. Yeah, I think the, ultimately the moment of choice for the Conservative Party was that key point in sort of July last year when the Parliamentary Party rose up and said, you know, Boris Johnson... Well, whatever you might think he achieved or didn't achieve uh, uh, is now a liability both for the party and the country. And we need to get rid of him. Uh, and what happened then was Liz Truss won by not repudiating Johnson. That was a very important moment. And I've spoken to a bunch of conservatives, you know, tried to explain why didn't Sunak win that contest and why did Truss win it? And they will say, look, it was one, one simple thing. Sunak had was stabbed Boris in the back and the grassroots weren't having it. Uh, and from everything uh, you know, now sort of flows from that point, because you're going to end up in a situation where without being able to articulate why it was a bad idea to have Boris Johnson continue in government, you will never really have an account of what good government is supposed to look like under Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak's choice now, I think, in all honesty, he's young enough. He can think I could have a legacy as a decent person who martyred himself to try and get Britain back on track of decent government and lost an election with honour. Or he can think, I can try and serve my party, scorch the earth and make the country ungovernable for Labour. Those are his choices. I'm not sure he can actually win. Uh, and it's very interesting that I don't think he realises that that's the choice he's actually facing. Now, I wonder if he if he doesn't realise that that's the choice he's presented with, whether he's going to take one or other of those options. Because I was going to ask Gabby, which one is the more likely as the immediate direction of travel for Rishi Sunak and his government? I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think the trouble is, it was really interesting seeing the way Labour chose to attack him at the Prime Minister's questions today, which is rather than go all out in a kind of you're useless, your party's corrupt, you know, everyone's furious. The line was, do you just not think this job's a bit too big for you? It was almost, it was invoking pity rather, which is an absolute killer emotion to use against a politician. Poor little Rishi. He's a bit out of his depth. You know, He can't play in this league. He's never going to get out from under the sort of just tsunami of of I can't use the word but it's what water companies put into the sea on a regular basis that's just flowing down from the sort of Johnson era and that he's all it's all a bit beyond him and it's very clever because it taps into I think what a lot of people feel about what a lot of Tory voters feel about Richard Sunak which is he's not a bad guy himself he's perfectly nice he's just not really you know this is all just a bit beyond him I had a very funny conversation with someone on the Labour side, actually, when saying, you know, are you when Rishi Sunak came in? So now you may be a little bit worried that now that he actually might be quite good at this, that he could be a threat to Starmer. And the response was simply, well, he lost to Liz Truss. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, that does suggest he's not as good at politics as you thought he was. That's really interesting what um, what Gabby said a moment ago about the idea that the Labour Party now is portraying him as a sort of pitiful character, that there's something hapless about him. I mean, I watch him sometimes and think... He's sort of suggestive of, of, of a couple of great British archetypes, really. There's something a bit Norman Wisdom and Mr. Beanie about, about Rishi Sunak. I mean, you know, unintentionally on his part, symbolised as much as anything else by when he got 
when he got a penalty notice for not wearing a seatbelt in the back of the car while he was making a video, you know. And the shades of, oh, you're the fellow who doesn't know how to use a contactless payment card and who made up all those stories about his car and all the rest of it, you know. And as um, as a political journalist once said, you know, accident-prone politicians don't become accident-prone by accident, right? That those things say something. Those things say something powerful about him and his lack of suitability to the job, really. And, and also something about the, the sort of the Winchester head boy who's studied a lot about politics on the page, but then gets into the top job and finds yeah, it yeah, a lot yeah. harder than it looks. And I, I think, and I get that not just from him, but the people around him yeah, as well. Yeah. The thing, there's some people who were pretty confident they knew how to do this, but everyone who gets into number 10 will tell you, all the advisors, not just the people who do the job, will say, you have no idea how hard it is compared to literally every other job anyone has ever had to do. Yeah, yeah. Did anyone ever have a posh supply teacher at school? <laughs> not in Essex we didn't <laughs> sort of arrives with the best of intentions but can't control the juvenile delinquents I mean that's really it isn't it it is that sense of he's doing his best and his best isn't quite good enough and it's very hard to hate someone in those circumstances but also it's very hard to see them as a leader it's very hard to see them as up to the enormous challenges that you can see ahead of you I mean just the, the, the with sort of scrabbling around in all of this stuff, you're barely scratching the surface of this, you know, can he end the nurses' strike? Can he pull off a March budget in almost impossible circumstances? Can he turn the economy around? Can he do it? You know, if, if you can't somehow manage to contain the excesses of your own predecessor, then it doesn't bode well for any of that. And that, that I think, is where we are at the moment. It's sort of a feeling of things just naturally petering away from them and, you, and a sense that they're heading not just for, you know, it's not a narrow defeat coming at this rate is an absolute being swept out with a tide. So we should also add that in this, this specific case of the Nadim Zahawi thing, there is this element that, I mean, Richard Sunak had a pretty smooth glide path upwards to the top of the Conservative Party, except his greatest bit of turbulence was with regard to his wife, her non-domicile status and private and personal tax finances. And those, there were legitimate questions there. And he responded very peevishly and very defensively. And it was a sign of very bad political judgment the way he responded to that. And that sense that there is a blind spot here for him in terms of thinking, this is a personal private thing you shouldn't intrude. That's actually, that's a serious, you know, he needs to check that political blind spot because it's doing him a lot of damage. I think everyone here is old enough to remember the sort of arse end of the John Major government. Maybe that's just something inevitable. Like this is what the end of conservative political cycles looks like. I don't sense the same for the very effortless gravitation towards Labour. I mean, there are signs in the polls now that it's direct Tory to Labour switching. Um, but just on the cephology alone, Labour aren't getting the seats in Scotland that they could count on in 1997. The electoral maths is different, but the, the mood feels very much. The same. And the other thing the mood reminds me of, actually, to say, is sort of, it's 2010. It's, it's Labour going out of office when they hit that point where you suddenly think you've not got any new ideas. You're saying the same thing over and over again and expecting to take credit for things that you've done five years ago. You've got no, you know, what's the forward offer? The, the only sort of forward thinking this party is doing is how do we get through the next week? It's not. What, where's my five-year you know, plan for a new term? That is just not there. And a bunch of people who are on the governing side who actually want to be in opposition now. They kind of, you can say, yeah, it, even if they don't knackered. know that that's what they want, they basically want to be in opposition. In fairness to Gordon Brown, it was not as bad as this. Anyway, we will close there. Thank you both for joining us. I hope to see you very, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review. I know I always say that, but I mean it. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Etahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 
Thank you.